two. Oh, exactly. Okay. Ready? Yep. Sin and Shin. We all know that from Spock. Spock. And let's see, it goes as follows. Um, looks like two front teeth or sharp press eat was a letter two. Rulers persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have you they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and I follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I obey your precepts and your statutes, for all my ways are known to you. Mm-hmm. All right, and then today is the 31st of August, which means tomorrow is the 1st of September. Okay. Yeah, it's going to start getting cool tomorrow. Can't wait. Almost the 25th, too. Yeah. Let's see here. Um, after the death of the godly teenage king Edward VI, and the nine-day reign of the likewise godly teenager, Lady Jane Grey, in 1553, Mary Tudor, the Roman Catholic daughter of King Henry VIII, became Queen of England. She insisted on restoring Catholicism as the state religion of England, and in 1555 gave the courts of the Roman Catholic Church the power to burn heretics. All Protestants were considered heretics. And the burning began, thus earning the, her, earning the queen her name, Bloody Mary. Robert Samuel found himself among the ranks of the heretics. Robert Samuel was the pastor at Barfold, England, where he was known during the reign of King Edward VI for his sincere faith, holy life, and dedication to the preaching of the Word of God. As part of Queen Mary's quest to eliminate Protestantism, Samuel and the other Protestant ministers were removed from their parishes and forbidden to preach. Putting his commitment to serve God above his personal safety, Samuel decided to continue to minister to his congregation secretly. The English clergy under the Roman Catholic Church had been celibate, but under the influence of the Reformation, had been allowed to marry. Now, adding insult to injury, the queen ordered all married clergymen to leave their wives and return to celibacy. Samuel was not willing to leave his wife. In his judgment, he would be breaking God's law if he left her, and he was not willing to break God's law for man's tradition. As a result, he risked arrest and refused to leave his wife. One night when he returned home to his wife, the authorities were waiting for him and arrested him. He was immediately taken to prison, never to see his wife again. While in prison, the bishop ordered that he be tortured with the cruelest techniques of the times. Many prisoners succumbed to such torture and either renounced their faith or lost their minds. Samuel was chained upright to a post so that he had to support his weight with only the tips of his toes. At the same time, he was deprived of food and drink given only two or three mouthfuls of food and a few sips of water each day, just enough to keep him alive to endure more pain. But Samuel showed great tenacity in enduring the pain, and he remained true to his faith. On 31 August of 1555, Samuel was taken to prison to be burned at the stake. He was eager to put, his, put an end to his torment and to be with his Savior. Before his execution, he told the assembled crowd how, after he had been deprived of food and water for a few days, 
He had fallen asleep, and a man dressed all in white appeared to him and said, Samuel, take good heart unto thee, for after this day shalt thou never be hungry or thirsty. He reported that after he awoke, he did not suffer from hunger or thirst during the rest of his imprisonment and torture. Robert Samuel was burned at the stake and went to meet his Savior. Although many of God's people have suffered and died under similar circumstances, without having a divine visitation like Robert Samuel had, his experience demonstrates how God is concerned for the sufferings of his people. If we, ever called, if we are ever called upon to suffer in a similar way, let us remain faithful unto death, whether or not we have a visit from heaven. Matthew 10, 22, everyone will hate you because of your allegiance to me, but those who endure to the end will be saved. Very poor verse to read because he's speaking to Israel yeah. about the end times, not about the church. So uh, we don't have to worry about enduring to the end in order to be saved. We are saved. We believed in Jesus. It's a completely different. I've said this how many times? Million, if you mix this dispensation and this dispensation, you will have contradictory theology. Not maybe, you will always have contradictory theology because Jesus was speaking in this context and Paul and the uh, apostles that wrote the New Testament are writing in this context. So that's a terrible verse to end that with. Hello it makes it look like we are bound to lose our salvation if we do something which would be God violating his covenant, which he covenanted sure. in us. Even if we violate it, he never will. So, uh, terrible verse to use. Let me uh, get some uh, uh, prayer requests here. Um, Doug is out of the hospital, Doug yes. in Ireland. He, uh, while he was in the hospital, he took time to paint paintings. And so, so he's uh, uh, got lots of those done and he uh, is doing well. Um, I told him to milk the situation and to tell Doe that he needs his feet rubbed often. I don't know if uh, he took my advice or not, but uh, okay. anyway. Um, okay, we need $278 for the 15th September Jesus movie. So if anybody wants to commit to that, let me know. And uh, uh, we've already got somebody gave 200 last month for it and some other things. And uh, somebody also picked up the tab for the... Uh, 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 new laptop that he needed. So all we need for the 15th September Jesus movie is $278. And if anybody wants to do that, great. Um, Silas in um, Kenya has made a land purchase and he has to have it paid off. I looked at the deed and I can't remember the date, but it's like within a year, uh, they need to have $16,000 to uh, have this land for food and agriculture. Uh, for the church people there. So uh, if you want to help Silas with his land purchase, let me know. Uh, I can tell you how to get money to him very easily. Um, uh, Vicki, who is uh, our girl at IHOP called and her brother-in-law in Ecuador is going through just terrible times. He had a, a back problem, immediate surgery, that got messed up, more surgery, and now they're saying he needs more surgery, but uh, the guy just doesn't want to go through anymore. So please keep Vicky's brother-in-law, I don't know his name, in prayer. And finally, for those of you who don't already know, Burke's son, John, died. And our, I, I just, uh, my heart goes out to him. I know everybody's does. Uh, it, very difficult time when you lose one of your children. It's something, you know, most of us have never experienced and we would hope never will. Uh, just a very difficult thing. But uh, Burke was, uh, while he, you know, was going through his uh, first or second day of uh, mourning, he was sending out uh, wonderful emails of his assurance 
in Christ and you know, the fact that uh, uh, John is going to be you know, raised into glory someday with all of us. And so uh, it, he has a hope that many people don't have. And it was uh, real reassuring to read his emails. But uh, keep, keep the Carico family in prayer. Um, all right, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, lift up these people that have needs, to uh, uh, just mourn with them in their, uh, just how difficult it is, Lord. Uh, but we have absolute assurance that because John had called on Jesus as his Savior, we don't need to mourn in the way that the world does. We can rejoice in the fact that uh, Jesus has total control over all of our destinies when we call on him. And we're very thankful for that. We don't need to endure to the end. We have endured by giving faith in you and you will carry us through. So we thank you for that. Uh, Lord, uh, we've read this particular passage about the person that was willing to die for his faith. And uh, we would pray that if we ever are faced with that in this nation, which seems more likely by the year, that we would be able to uh, remain faithful and be an example and a witness to those who see that we are not willing to deny Jesus under any circumstances, but to remain faithful. Lord, uh, we pray for this class and we pray that you will help us to uh, uh, just conduct it properly and that what is said will be proper. Thank you. Thank you for your precious word and thank you for Jesus who is revealed in it. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Six. Six are left. Six verses left. Is that right? Yes, it and is. And they're all going to be short because they're like salutations and stuff. So um, let's see here. Let me put this here so it doesn't fall again. It's always good when you drop your iPad and wonder if it's going to come out unscathed well, or not. What's interesting is if we do end it today, <laughs> we'll have ended the sermons and the Bible study. On the same week. I know. Very, very wonderful. Saying something. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started. We're in 524. Okay. I'll start at the... Uh, beginning of the paragraph, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 24. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Okay, this one says, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Okay, and then also it's probably the same uh, uh, conjunction, it just translator's preference there. Um, let's see here. Um, the verse now is given as a fixed and sure follow-up to what was just said concerning being preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord. Talk about perfect verse. Yeah. I mean, we just read that nonsense. Uh, you know, the commentary is fine. They give the history and then they give you this nonsense verse to ruin the entire commentary at the end of it. It says, you know, if you endure to the end, you will be saved. And then right here it says, he who calls you is faithful who also will do it. You will be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Immediate contradiction between what Jesus said and what Paul said, unless you understand dispensations. Immediate contradiction. And there you go. That resolves it right there. There is no contradiction in the Bible. There is a context which must be maintained. We will be preserved faithless, uh, uh, preserved blameless, and he is faithful. He will do it. Not Jim Dwyer, not Loretta, not Charlie Garrett, not my wife, not any of you. He will do it. He will preserve us. And so we have made the proclamation. We have accepted the payment for our sins. 
I don't understand how people can't get this, but the problem is that they mix dispensations and come up with bad theology because of verses like this right here, this. I just wish that they had not added that in. It ruined the whole commentary. Anyway, um, uh, in this verse, the emphasis is on the person who calls instead of the act of calling. The Greek reads, faithful the one calling you. God offers reconciliation through Christ Jesus. When a person accepts that call through faith, nothing can change or nullify what has then been granted. That's it. Salvation is eternal. It is a one-time done deal. Okay? I, I, I'm almost upset right now thinking about people that sit in churches and tell you that you can lose your salvation. Of course, they will never admit that they have lost their salvation when they've done exactly the same stupid things that you've done all week long as well. But never worry that they're going to lose their Oh, no, they don't. But they'll tell you that, that you can. That's exactly right. It's just maddening. Okay. Um, God offers reconciliation through Christ Jesus. When a person accepts that call through faith, nothing can change or nullify what has then been granted. Should those who have been called not be carried all the way to glorification, the very character of God, not you, the very character of God would be forfeit. It is an impossibility. He has covenanted in the giving of Jesus Christ. He has given his son and he has said, this is the covenant. If you accept the parameters for this, you will be saved. That's it. He has now entered into covenant with you. You accepted the parameters, you believed by faith, and Jesus Christ has done the work to get you to be saved. God will never violate his part of that covenant. So God is truth. His word says that man is saved by faith through grace. It doesn't say this is conditional or that God could change his mind, which he couldn't. Instead, it says that when a person believes, that person is sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance. That's Paul's words, the guarantee of our inheritance, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You cannot lose your salvation. And, and it's not that he couldn't, it's he wouldn't. No, he, he couldn't. He, he well, has spoken. I know, but he... he he wouldn't he anyway. God, but like yeah. I mean, but still, he wouldn't because he'd be violating his own thing. So That's right. It's like it's, Which means he couldn't. Well, he couldn't. He cannot violate his. He is God. Yeah, if he speaks and he does he something, it is an eternal like decree. Can God sin? He cannot because he is God. God. Right. So, yeah. Absolutely. Right. It's the same, I guess, yeah. right. Yeah. It, it's before or after, but it's like you know, it is true. He he can't because he himself would Won't. not. That's right. So, That's right. God has given a guarantee. He will not violate this guarantee. Instead, he also, Paul's words, also will do it. In this, the word it is inserted. The object is left unexpressed in the original, thus forming an emphatic expression. God has said, and he will do. There is active performance in the work of God, and there is surety in its fulfillment. Paul's confidence of such things is seen elsewhere as well. In his second letter to Timothy, we see the same display of surety that he provides to us here in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, which is, if you don't know where Timothy is, just remember, remember that it begins with T. So you've got 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. T, 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 T. 
Okay, well, I think I added in one too many T's there. Anyway, uh, 2 Timothy 1, am I in the second epistle? Yes, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. The onus is not on us to keep our salvation. The onus is on God. He has covenanted with us. We have done our part. We have done what he expected by faith. And so that is an act of grace on his part. And it can be nothing more or nothing less. It is grace, period. Now you were smiling. Did something happen? Oh, no. Oh, okay. Uh, just comments also. Oh, okay, good, good, good. Saying good things. <laughs> oh, yeah, I just, just thought maybe there was something I needed to know. Um, this is actually, if you think about it, a huge encouragement for believers to possess and to meditate on, sure. especially when they, like Charlie Garrett, every day of his life, fall short and mess up. They can question, why would you love me as you do? But there is no reason to question, do you still love me after what I have done? There's no reason to question that. We can confidently avow that because of our faith in Christ Jesus, we are saved, we are sealed, and we are on the sure and guaranteed road to glorification. Deal done. Life application. Confidence in the promises of God is a source of rewards all by itself. Demonstrating faith in God's promises, even when we have failed, shows that we have our trust in Him not in our own accomplishments or failings. Stand fast on the word and trust that God is faithful. Okay, what you can do the next time somebody, you're on one of those little sites and somebody says, yes, you can lose your salvation, you can take what I just said and you can throw it back at him. You are lacking faith in the word of God and therefore you are losing rewards right now. Right now, because it is faith that you receive your rewards by, nothing else. If you give something to somebody and you're not doing it in faith, you're not going to get any reward for it. But if you're doing it in faith that God will recognize what you have done, then you will receive your reward. Faith is the basis for everything from our salvation all the way through to the end of our life on how we will receive rewards and losses. So, if, we'll say it again. When somebody says, oh, you can lose your salvation, then just throw it back in them and say, well, you have lost rewards because you do not have faith in the promises and the covenant-keeping nature of God. God's word is an eternal decree. That's all there is to it. He does not change. When he makes a decree, it is eternal by nature because God is outside of time. He's not within the stream of time. So when he says something, it exists. It is, okay? And therefore, that's the way that it is. This chair just really is crazy. Uh, 525. Brothers, pray for us. I didn't even get a chance to open you, the thing. Uh, brethren, brethren, pray for us. Yeah, they got the old formal English there. Um, let's see here. In this epistle, Paul has noted several times his prayers or petitions for those at Thessalonica, such as in verse 1-2. Let me take you back there. Verse 1-2 says, oh, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Okay, so there you go. He's mentioned these people, and he says um, uh, particular statements of thanks to God or prayers to God on their behalf are seen again in chapter 2, chapter 3, and 
chapter 5. Now Paul specifically requests prayers be made on behalf of him and those with him. This request is all the more appropriately placed here because in just two more verses, he will charge them to have the letter read to all the congregants. In his first word here, brethren, has been used time and time again in this letter. It would be no good to ask unbelievers to pray, would it? You say to an unbeliever, I'd like you to pray about that. You're wasting your time because God is not going to hear their prayers, okay? That's the way it is. If people don't like to hear that, people say, oh yeah, no, we, we'll mix our prayers in with the Buddhists and the Mormons and all these other people and we'll uh, you know, have more of an effect before God. It doesn't work that way. If somebody, we talked about this last week, didn't we? If, I think so. Praying. If somebody is not in Christ, then their prayer is not being mediated by Jesus Christ and therefore God the Father is not going to respond, okay? If there is a response, we talked about that, maybe it wasn't this week, but two it wasn't, ago. yeah, it was two, weeks two weeks ago. ago. Um, you know, and so go back and watch that video. It's, it's very clear what God is doing. What God wants to hear from an unbeliever is the prayer of, anybody? Thanks. No, prayer of accepting oh, Jesus. Once that prayer has been done, he has said, oh God, and however it is, I say a prayer, but it's the words breathed out to God. I accept that I have sinned. I believe that Jesus, you know, could be right in your heart. You know, you don't have to say it out loud, but once you have accepted Jesus Christ, now he can hear your prayers because you have a mediator to take you. If you are not saved by Jesus, here's the crux of the matter. You have sin. Sin is a separation between you and God. You cannot have fellowship with an infinitely holy God when you have sin in you. And therefore, there's a wall. There's a divider between you. Jesus Christ is the one that breaks down that wall. You become in Christ, a part of him, in the sense that he is now mediating everything about you to God the Father without the stain of sin. That's why, you know, if you think about what happened, um, and uh, we're not going to be there for another book or two. I can't remember. I think it's, um, uh, it's not Judges, is it? Maybe it's one Samuel. It might be Judges. I can't remember. The story where the uh, ark is carried down to the Philistines. Okay, it's there, and they have plagues, and they move it over to the next town, and they have plagues. And finally, they say, what should we do? And they devise a plan to take the ark and send it back to Israel. And they'll have a way of proving if it really was sent back to Israel because they're going to take a cow that has never been yoked, and they're going to hook it up to this ark, that's on a wagon and they're gonna send it. And the mother, or maybe it was the mother that uh, was taken and they, the, the calves were here. Anyway, either the mother or the calves, one of them, them is um, uh, now going to take this ark. And the instinct of a mother is to be with the child. And what does it say? It was, it was the mother. The mother load all the way, carrying this ark, leaving the kids behind and just going off to Israel. They knew that God wanted that ark back in Israel. The ark got back to, and I might be blowing the story a little bit because I didn't think of it until right now, but the ark gets back to the city and they take the, uh, the uh, cart that it's on and they cut it up and they make a bonfire and they put the uh, cow on the fire as an offering to God, okay? So that's the story. After that, they did something. What did they do? Oh, I don't recall. The people of this city looked into the ark. Remember that? What was what happened when they looked into the ark? 
they died. And it says, some texts say 70 people died. Some texts say, I think it's 50,070 people died. Either way, the people looked into the ark and they died. Why did they die? Because they had sin. Because they had sin. They were looking down on the perfect law of God, the tablets of stone from God. They were looking down on them. The whole point of that passage is to say that without the covering of blood, there is no remission of sin. They removed the mercy seat where the blood was covered or uh, sprinkled every year. They removed that. Now, this wouldn't apply to these Philistines because, of course, the Philistines looked in and they, what's all this? You know, and it doesn't say whatever happened to the, the jar of manna, the golden jar of manna, but it's never mentioned again. Probably the Philistines took it out. And the other things that were in there, okay, the only thing that they wouldn't have wanted were those stone tablets. Why would they want that, right? Doesn't apply to them. These are the covenant people, and they are being used as a example of the holiness of God. They looked into this ark without the mercy seat, and they died. We cannot approach a holy God without the covering. And Jesus Christ is the covering. Everybody see the symbolism? Yeah. The blood I, is removed. There is no atonement for sin. It all just like struck me right then. Of course that's why they died. Because they of course. Sin. That's right. They have they, sin. They, they no They've looked down on the perfect right. law of God. A picture of Jesus, okay, without his atoning blood, and they died. Okay? And that's the picture. Two okay. weeks ago, shortest verse in the Bible. Oh. Be joyful. Oh, always. be joyful continually always. Continually pray. There, there you go. So we talked about it two weeks ago. Okay, so um, we are. Um, uh, what verse are we in? We're in verse twenty-five, or no, we're yes, 25. twenty-five. Okay. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, I don't even know where I left off. Particular statements of thanks to God or prayers to God on their behalf are seen. I said that. Okay. This request is all the more appropriately placed here. Because in just two more verses, he will charge them to have the letter read to all the congregants. In his first word here, brethren, it has been used time and again in the letter. I see this is where I left off. It would be uh, no good to ask unbelievers to pray. God does not hear the prayers of people except those who are redeemed through Christ. Once that happens, he can then mediate those prayers in his priestly role. And so the brethren alone are given the request. He's not writing to anybody else in this epistle except the brethren, except in a general sense. Anybody can pick up the Bible, anybody can read it, and they can say, well, I believe this or I don't believe it, okay? But they are not brethren until they call on Christ. So it's written to brethren, but all people can access the word of God. All right, everybody got that? It, the, the direction is to us, all right? And so the brethren alone are given the request. The word in Greek translated as for is peri, or about. Think of about. He is asking for prayers which cover all of their needs, personal, ministerial, and so on. Just as Paul has carefully noted various prayers on behalf of those at the church, so he is asking for prayers concerning himself and those with him. As ministers of the gospel, they faced many dangers, they faced many persecutors, and they faced the same temptations as any other people. Paul considered the prayers for them as necessary in order to empower them to overcome these various things which would come their way. Life application. If Paul, who had personally seen the risen Christ and who had been led by him throughout his ministry, felt that prayers were needed for him to continue, 
Should we feel any less so today? Rather, we should be more than grateful to receive the prayers of others so that we too can be strengthened in our continued walk in the presence of the Lord. Let us be willing to both pray for others and be accepting of prayer from others. Okay, that reminds me of something I was thinking about today. Not the prayer part, but Paul had seen the risen Lord. Paul uh, had been encount- had encountered the Lord several times in his ministry. Um, a couple of them were after this point in time in his uh, letters. But Paul had personal connection with the Lord, okay? He was being led by the Spirit. It was obvious, you know, to him that this was the case. And yet, he writes in Romans about the struggle he faced with sin, right? And we know that he's writing about it personally. You can just tell by the way he's writing. He's not making a general example. Peter, Peter had seen the ministry of Jesus from beginning to end. Peter had seen Jesus hanging on a cross. Peter saw Jesus resurrected. He talked to him. And then he waffled in his convictions in the book of Galatians, right? I mean, this is a guy that had seen the whole shebang and he was waffling, and he went back, and he was following the ways of the Judaizers instead of standing fast on the gospel of Christ. Solomon. Solomon. Was uh, ordained as king, or whatever, anointed as king, and he received a word from the Lord. Remember the dream he had. And he said, what do you want? And he says, well, I, I just need you to help me. I need, I need wisdom so that I can lead this great people. He didn't ask for the death of his enemies. He didn't ask for wealth, didn't ask for any of that. And the Lord was very pleased. And he said, I'm going to give you all of those things. Okay. So Solomon met the Lord. And later in his life, a second time, uh, he met the Lord again. I don't know if it was a dream or a prophet came to him, whatever. But Solomon had personal experience with the Lord. And yet he fell away from the Lord. Okay, he started sacrificing to uh, the gods of the Ammonites and the Moabites and all the other ites that are out there. Okay, the point that I'm making is that Solomon fell away from the Lord. Peter, who had all the more reason to stand fast, fell away from the Lord. Paul wrote that he struggled with the things of this life. Okay, do you think you're any better than any of them? I mean, really, do you think you're any better? Do you think that you can face the same struggles and the same trials that they faced and not be downhearted or not, you know, oops, you know, I, I, I failed the Lord today. I didn't stand up for the gospel. I mean, if Peter can do it and be saved, you can do it and be saved. All right. That's the point I'm making is that uh, Paul writes about these things. I need prayer. Pray for us. Do you think that you can make it without prayer when all these other people that were intimately fellowshipping with the Lord, that had seen the Lord, they asked for prayer because they understand the power of prayer. So please don't feel like, one, you shouldn't ask for prayer, and two, that you shouldn't be praying for others, and three, that if you fail, you have somehow blown it. None of those things are the case. You need to make sure that you follow through, just as Paul does, or the other apostles, that you follow through with that as well, okay? It's not an easy walk. If it was an easy walk, then uh, Solomon would have held fast to the Lord, and Peter would not have waffled in his convictions, you know, in the greatest of ways. I mean, he didn't just fall away in some uh, esoteric manner. He fell away by marring the grace that he had received, okay, in front of people that needed to know that the grace was truly grace. And thank goodness that Paul was... uh, 
firm about that at the time. So uh, hang on to these things and just know that your failings are not any reason that God is going to reject you. Okay, just get up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, apologize for what you've done and move on or ask for prayer if you need it. Okay, um, uh, still speaking to the brethren. Let's see here. Um, oh, wait a minute. Did I finish that? Uh, yes, life application. Uh, did I read that too? If Paul had personally seen the risen Christ who had been led by him throughout his ministry, oh, I talked about it, but I didn't read it, felt that prayers were needed for him to continue. I did read this. I did read this. Well, okay. saying one way okay. Or Yeah, I just, I, I, I can't, uh, sometimes I get talking and I reiterate what was said in the prayer. And, yes. What about Saul? So I heard an argument, well, Saul has lost his kingship and the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. You already know I'm going to answer because you asked me this recently. Yeah, the answer is no. Saul was a member of the covenant people of Israel and he received the annual atonement on the day of atonement. The only way that Saul would not be saved is if he didn't believe in the atoning power of the day of atonement, okay? But that could be true of anybody in Israel. Any person in Israel uh, could lose or could not be saved because they did not believe by faith in the atoning power of the day of atonement. But Saul, it doesn't matter what Saul did, if he was remorseful and if he followed through with the requirements of the Day of Atonement, which is a picture of Christ's atoning sacrifice for us. He is as saved as anybody else in Israel, as saved as David. The difference is that he will be less of a shining light than David will, right? And, and that's, that's the only what difference. That's it was when God took his spirit away from him. It wasn't the spirit of salvation. It that's was right. working through him as a king. That's right. Okay, so that's exactly right. So it, it, we talked about that. Was it you that I talked to about that before? I, I talked to somebody about that, but that, that is a very poor analysis of, uh, by somebody to say that Saul lost his salvation. That's a terrible analysis because, one, it's a completely different context, but two, they're not thinking of the whole purpose of the Day of Atonement. So, what's that? It wasn't him. Though. Oh, no, it wasn't. He was asking the question because he had heard this from somebody else. I, I, I'm certain of that because that's, I know that. He probably was talking to somebody, and whether it was him or somebody else, I've heard that conversation between them and uh so no uh well the only thing about that is that okay if um let's say that saul at the day of atonement was remorseful for all he did it was always the next day well that's right and then and you know that's right and that's why these were only pictures of the coming christ mm -hmm. because it says very clearly in the book of hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats do not satisfy cannot yeah. take I'm away sin when you get to those sermons because my thought is I'm not saying this is it but what if you know how David says, I will not kill the uh, Lord's anointed. Right. So even though he lost the spirit of the Lord, lost his kingship, but David would not kill the Lord's anointed. But because he was anointed, the anointed of the Lord. And we are anointed when we come to the that's Lord. That's right. So I wonder if that's a picture of eternal salvation, but until the day is that, he was anointed. Yeah. Well, so we'll get there and we'll find out what it, yeah. It's, it, <laughs> In 10 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. About 10 years. Uh, maybe not that long. I'm curious to see on your other one you referenced about, um, uh, what was it just earlier in Judges? with the other people who did, um, you know, commentary on it. You were just talking earlier about in Judges where, um, oh gosh, what was it? Just a few minutes ago we were talking about it. Uh, it doesn't matter. Go ahead. Well, I don't I'll, know. I'll think about I, it. I don't even remember bringing up Judges. So Maybe it wasn't Judges. Maybe, oh, I mean, yeah, it's my broken brain. Okay. Um, uh, Solomon, you mean? Is Solomon falling away? No. Okay. All right. Um, okay, we're in uh, 26. It was the Ark of the Covenant. 
Oh, the Arkin. Yeah, there and that go. was that was either Judges or one Samuel, and I can't remember off the top of my head. Right, it was taken. That was insightful. Yeah. About looking in. Yeah. Oh, well, that's the whole point. We're supposed to see Jesus in these right, passages. Right. What are we being shown? And in that particular passage, it, you, it, it's very, very evident what is going on. This is the blood of the covenant. I am sprinkling this once a year on the Day of Atonement to cover the sins of the people. You have to go back to Exodus and understand the symbolism. If that blood is not there, and the whole point of putting that, those uh, Ten Commandments inside of the the uh, Ark of the Covenant is what? It it's a picture. Jesus. It, it not... represents Jesus being the embodiment yes. of the law of Moses. He embodies it. He is incorrupt with the, the wood. He is deity because of the gold. All of it pictures Jesus. The blood is to cover the sins of the people. When God looks down at us, he's not seeing us. He's seeing the atoning power of Jesus Christ. Because if he sees us as we are, he can have no fellowship with us. None. It is Christ that makes our relationship with God possible. And that's what we're supposed to see in these types and pictures of the Old Testament. So when you're reading the Bible, think, don't just think, well, oh, they went in there and they died. Why did they die? What is it that brought the death about uh, brought about the death of those people? So it's 1 Samuel 620. 1 Sam okay, 1 Samuel. It's amazing. Wow. That's great, great. What does it say how many people there? Um, um Oh, one Samuel six twenty. I'll tell you, it, and because it, and it'll give me it in. The, oh, I got it marked right here. Look at that, one Samuel six and verse twenty, and it says, um, uh, or he struck seventy men, but this one says he struck um, uh, fifty thousand and seventy men. So I was right on both accounts. Uh, one account, one text says seventy, and one says fifty thousand seventy men. Regardless of it, it was a great slaughter. The people died, and they did what they did after that. So, okay, we're in uh, verse 26. Six, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Okay, I've, uh, there's a whole denomination that takes this verse completely out of context. Um, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Okay, there you go. Um, let's see here. Paul just said, brethren, pray for us. Still speaking to the brethren and in an admonishment that they should all be in one mind and in one accord, he gives them words to instill this in them. He exhorts them to greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. This doesn't mean just those in the congregation, but any and all who are the redeemed of the Lord in whatever church they attend. This becomes problematic, and I'll talk about this in a minute, okay? Uh, there's a couple of denominations that demand that you greet one another with a holy kiss, okay? That, that, this becomes problematic. Uh, Think of yourself here, and then let's go on into other cultures, all right? And we'll, do, we'll, we'll get into it in a minute. The holy kiss is an expansion of the kiss of greeting, which is seen in many nations to this day. If you see people in Saudi Arabia at a diplomatic mission, what do they do? Kiss each other. They Cheer. come up and they, even if they're the bitterest of enemies, like the, the um, uh, Iranians and the Saudis, they go to a meeting, they will kiss each other. Okay, that's what they do. When Ronald Reagan goes to the Saudi uh, foreign minister, does he kiss him? No. Okay. Everybody get keep, keep things in context here, okay? It's an expansion of the kiss of greeting, which is seen in many nations to this day. It is the same idea as when Western nations today do what? What do we do when we greet somebody? 
We shake hands. We shake hands, okay? Or possibly hug. If you come to the Superior Word Church, you're probably going to get a hug, okay? You're, it's probably going to happen on Sunday morning. If you don't like that, then you have to walk around like this and say, don't hug me, don't hug me, okay? Anyway, um, so... Uh, where are we now? Um, oh yeah, okay, possibly a hug depending on familiarity. In the Far East, if you go up and you hug somebody in the Far East, they will either have a heart attack and die or they'll punch you in the head, okay? A deep and respectful bow is given in substitute of this. And depending on who is subordinate to the other, the bow will be different. You have to learn the custom of the bow. If you blow it, they will forgive you because at least you're trying. You're not coming up and giving them a holy kiss or a holy hug, okay? But you need to learn the rules of the bow when you go to any foreign uh, Eastern nation. Although Paul's letters are prescriptive, intent must always be considered. Is Paul mandating that all people in all churches meet one another with a literal holy kiss? That's what we have to ask because this is a prescriptive epistle and he's saying to do it. The answer is, anybody? Yes. He says yes. Oh, no, no. No. <laughs> the reason why this is important is because there are small pockets of churches that mandate this, even today and even in Western societies, such as in the United States. However, the intent of the kiss of, I'm sorry, the intent of the kiss of greeting is cultural, not merely biblical. Proof of this follows from the first kiss noted in the Bible in Genesis 27, verse 26, when Isaac blessed his son Jacob before he departed to Padan Aram. From that point, the kiss is seen among the covenant people and among those who aren't yet in the covenant, thus demonstrating the cultural nature of the greeting. It is found in Acts 19.13. Oops, I'm sorry. It is found in... Is that right? 93? Why am I on page 95? How did that happen? Um, it is used in the same way, in the same way we use a handshake. When Jacob met Rachel without knowing her in any familiar way, and she wasn't a, you know, a, a member of the church at the time or of the covenant people, he did what? He kissed her. Jacob went up and he kissed this girl. The following exchange begins with a kiss of greeting and ends in death. And let me take you to it. We're going to 2 Samuel again. We were in 1 Samuel a minute ago. Now we're going to go to 2 Samuel. And we're going to read verses uh, verse 20, 9 and 10. Now the distressing spirit of... No, that's not the one I wanted. Um, where is the one? I've got the wrong reference. Oh, I'm in 19. Yes, I've got the right reference. I'm on the wrong page. But Jonathan said... That's not what I want either. Let me try 21. It's one of these, you know, this is what happens when you look at a page and you, um, uh, oh, and you gotta be in the right book too. I'm in 1 Samuel. You gotta be in the right book, Charlie. Um, 1 Samuel 10, okay, 17. It's a problem when you're in the wrong book and look for a reference. Okay, 1 Samuel 20, verses nine and 10, it says, um, I'll start in eight. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. So he's got his belt on with his, you know, his sword and everything, and he lets it fall. So now you think that he's friendly, okay? 
Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again, thus he died. Okay, so are we supposed to, you know, the law first mentioned in the Bible where people used to justify tithing, the first time you grab somebody with your right hand by a beard and you go to give him a kiss, you must stab yeah. him in the stomach, right? Now, you know, everything has a context. Uh, in 1 Samuel 20, verse 41, David and Jonathan, close male friends, gave a fraternal kiss in accord with the culture before departing. To, uh, as Proverbs 27, let me see here. Proverbs, Jeremiah, go back, Charlie, Psalms. Hang on a sec. Got to get there. Proverbs 27 and verse 6 says, come on, Charlie. Okay. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Remember I said that Saudis and Iranians, even if they're enmity with each other, will kiss each other. Okay. And then they go back to their country and they plot their deceit and blow each other up. Okay. So uh, just because somebody kisses doesn't mean that they're having uh, fellowship with each other, just like when we shake hands in America. This demonstrates clearly that the kiss is cultural because even enemies will kiss rather than shake hands. This is seen in these parts of the world today when leaders who are at war with each other still greet with a kiss. Exchanging kisses with shaking of hands in the proverb, proverb would hold exactly the same meaning and intent. I'm not asking you to change the word of God. I'm just saying that if you replace the word kiss from that proverb with the word shake hands, it would mean the same thing. This demonstrates, oh yes. Uh, and as a premier example of this, we want to read this exchange between Jesus and Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7. So let me take you there. Luke 7. So if you ever attend, I think it's the Brethren of Christ or the Nazarenes or one of these churches, and they say you have to greet each other with the holy kiss, and if you don't, you're not saved and all that crazy stuff. You're not saved by kissing other people. You are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Anyway, Luke chapter 7, and then we want to go to uh, verse 43. One more here, Charlie. Uh, let's see here. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. There it is, an enemy almost. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is given, the same loves little. And of course, the most famous kiss in history is recorded concerning Judas's betrayal of Jesus and reflects the sentiments of Proverbs 27, 6, which I read a minute ago. It reflects it perfectly. It is more important than to understand the cultural nature of this admonition by Paul, lest we get swept up into legalism over something which is actually not intended for all cultures and in all situations. 
If a person with an immune deficiency were to use this verse in a prescriptive manner, he could soon be dead from receiving the germs of others. When we first opened, I don't know if you remember, I won't give her name, but she attended here for a while, sure. and she had very weak immune system. She wouldn't hug anybody, wouldn't grab anybody by the hand, nothing, because it would kill her if she did, all right? So finally, she just stopped attending because it's just too close quarters for her, et cetera. But you gotta uh, take everything in context and you gotta understand the, the situation. But these legalists would say, if she's not kissing the other brethren, then she's not saved or some crazy thing like that. Finally, the kisses in these and other verses throughout the Bible, which are between men and men, such as David and Jonathan noted above, are not in any way intended to convey the perverse sin of homosexuality, as modern liberals often imply, which they use that verse to justify that particular sin. Okay, so I just have to say that that, that is not what the Bible is saying. That is not the context of the Bible. And these men were married men. They happened to love each other very much. They're people that we love just as much, male and female, but it doesn't mean that you know, when we shake somebody's hand in America, which is comparable, comparable to the kiss of uh, David and Jonathan, it doesn't mean that we are homosexuals. It means that we are shaking each other's hands. Okay, okay. Israel was still kissed if you go to the United Oh yeah, States. absolutely. Kiss to the people in church. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's it's cultural. It's cultural. Right. And so that's just confirming what I said in my commentary because he says right there in Nazareth, people, give the holy kiss to each other even to this day because it is a cultural thing, okay? So um, to imply this in their writings, what I just talked about shows a disregard for God's order in the natural world. Life application. If you are in Rome, anybody? Do as the Romans do. As the Romans do. If you are in Japan, do as they do. It would not be appropriate to go to a church in the Far East and attempt to hug, kiss, or even shake hands with another person unless they first offered. Um, I was in the Korean church for years and years. Uh, the pastor was a great guy. He was a very nice, humble little guy. He um, uh, was just very pleasant. And um, I didn't see him for years because I went, I, I got ordained and I started uh, teaching over at Grace Baptist. And anyway, um, then I was asked to do a wedding for a couple people that were in the church. And so I went up there and the pastor of course, was at their wedding as well because they were in his church. And um, uh, when I did the wedding, I saw him and I, I was so happy. I gave him a hug and that guy was so embarrassed. He he literally shrunk down. You couldn't see him anymore. He was like, oh, it, it's just not what you do. But I was so happy to see him that whatever. So I, uh, he didn't do in what we do in Rome because when yeah. you're in Rome, you're supposed to do as Romans. And it was a, uh, a wedding done by a nun Korean, Korean, so whatever. Anyway, I felt so bad, the poor guy. Anyway, um, if you're in a Mideastern area, a fraternal kiss may accompany a greeting, as in Nazareth. In America, a hearty handshake and maybe a friendly hug is the custom. The intent of Paul's words is promoting warmth and harmony between believers, not causing offense, okay? So, um, in the Greek culture, they kissed. So that's what they did, and he's telling them, greet each other with a holy kiss. He is telling them to greet each other fraternally. That is what he is doing, okay? The fact that a kiss is used is actually, you know, just... Okay, if you disagree with that, that's fine, but you're wrong. Okay, 527. I charge you before the Lord 
to have this letter read to all the brothers. Okay, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. That you just kissed. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see. What's that? That you just kissed. Yes. Yes. Okay, uh, 527. The word charge in this verse doesn't really catch the depth of meaning of the original. It is a word horkizo, which is used only three times. The first is in Mark 5, 7, where a demon in a man implores Christ Jesus by God not to be tormented. The second, the second is found in Acts 19, 13, where the casting out of evil spirits was attempted in the name of Jesus. The word comes from horkos, meaning an oath. Therefore, Paul's words here should say something like, I bind you by oath before the Lord. The question as to why Paul would adjure them in such a weighty manner is debated. It is possible that he is making certain that no uninspired doctrine would be accepted by the congregation. Only a letter from Paul or another apostle was to be held as inspired. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, he seems to hint at this very notion. Let me take you there. I don't remember exactly. Oh, I know exactly what it is, um, where he's talking to them about not getting swayed by people with their false uh, hair. It says, um, I'll read verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you too, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. He's telling them, don't believe this nonsense. Come on in, good sir. Hello. Hello. Hey. Charlie. Good to see you there, buddy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We've got pizza today because we're finishing up the epistle, and Phil sent uh, some money for the pizza, so we all want to, uh, uh, when we say goodbye and wave, we want to wave to Phil and uh, uh, thank him for that. And um, uh, we'll pray about the pizza before we go in there. But uh, uh, now... Oh, we'll, we'll talk about that one later. Hey, man, grab a couple of them. You'll need them. It's a long night. I can't resist. Yeah, there you go, buddy. Bless everyone. All right, be blessed and have a wonderful, wonderful evening. Say hi to Wall, okay? I'll do that. Thank you. All right, now. Uh, and uh, you all, if you don't, uh, if you're not hungry, you still have to take a piece of pizza home, okay? Uh, it, you've got family. Take it home to them because th these pizzas are giant. Okay, he doesn't just give us a little pizza. He gives us this giant thing, and then the, they're so thick, one piece will fill you up. And we don't have a lot of people here, so uh, you got to take some home. We can't have Did any pizza left over. Yes, Good yes, Lord. he was here. <laughs> speedy delivery. He was, a, he was Speedy Gonzalez today. Okay, so I read you 2 Thessalonians 2. He seems to hint at that notion. All right, you don't want to believe everything you, what you hear. You want to believe what is in Scripture. We were talking about that before the class today. What was the context? We were saying um, uh, something, it's not in the Bible, and therefore, um, oh, the, um, uh, what's the name of the book? The, uh, oh, the Left uh, Behind. Left Behind Theory series. You know, how many times do people quote the Left Behind series as if it's, what's going to happen. It's fiction, okay? It, it, it's not based in reality, and it doesn't really follow the Bible, even in what it, uh, you know, tries to hint at in relation to the rapture. It's a very poor rendering of what is going on, but it's fine that they did that. I have no problem with re people reading the Left Behind series. It's just like reading anything else. It's a novel. You read it. You get excited, etc. But be sure that you separate 
your thoughts about what is going to happen from the Bible and from the uh, Left Behind series. Okay, the things that they say there may or may not happen. You know, if they're in line with the Bible, they will happen. But all the other stuff is just stuff and it's not scriptural. So be very careful what you believe. There's all kinds of inaccuracies in their thinking. Uh, so just, just make sure that when you read something, if it does not align with scripture, I don't care how sincere it sounds, don't believe it, okay? People were making prophetic claims that the day of the Lord had already come. That's 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2. He could be adjuring them now, here in this epistle, to stick to Scripture alone, as people continuously claim idiotic prophetic revelations to this day. To this day, it is a warning which has gone totally unheeded by those who listen to such things. Paul's words are ignored, and nonsense is believed as if it were based on Scripture. Along with this, it demonstrates that what he has written is thus to be followed by all people, if not all people in the church. If the letter was received by the elders, it was still to be read to everyone in order to ensure that they were equipped with the same doctrine, filled with the same exhortations, and motivated by the same admonitions. Now, the reason why I added that in is because if you uh, go to the Old Testament, it says Moses called Israel together and he gave them this, or Joshua called the people together and he told them this. It may be that only the elders of Israel are there in front of him, not all of Israel. For Joshua to have all of Israel would mean that several million people were gathered around and they wouldn't be able to hear him anyway. The elders represent Israel. And because the elders represent Israel, when it says he called all of Israel, they can go and convey that message down to the people below them so that Joshua doesn't have to speak at the top of his old voice and Moses doesn't have to try to yell out when he can hardly speak anymore, right? Whatever. So the point is that the same thing is true here. Paul may have just written this to the elders, okay? They received it. He's letting them know that this goes to all people. And those letters are now in the Bible. And the Bible is available to all people. The Catholic Church, however, to this day, believes that they are in control of Scripture. That they should be the determiners of what is read and what will be heard by the people. Okay, there is a guy um, in the Reformation. It was called the um, uh, the something of the saints. Uh, what am I? What's the word I'm looking at? The uh, the priesthood of the saints. In other words, we are given a the authority of the priesthood. Okay, and Paul ties the priesthood in with. Does anybody know what he says our priestly duty is? He uses this one time. Paul sharing the gospel. That is a priestly duty. Okay, but if we have a priestly duty, it means we fulfill the role of a priest, okay? And that's not saying that we're doing the atoning and all that. Christ has done all of that. He is the high priest. He has done all of the necessary things for our salvation, etc. But we are in the priesthood of believers. This is what the Reformation came out of. And I have heard Catholics in videos right there say that it is not acceptable for non clergy to teach the Bible. In other words, you have no right to teach the Bible if you know the Bible. Does everybody get that? Yeah, right. We have all the right in the world. If I know the Bible and somebody needs a Bible answer, question answer, and I'm talking about anybody, not just Charlie Garrett, anybody, you have a right to teach the Bible, okay? Because 
it's the priesthood of the believers. The Catholic Church believes that only certain people are qualified to teach the Bible. All right? That is crazy. And that is exactly why they're in such bad shape, is because when somebody says, we tell you what the Bible says and what it means and what you can and can't read from it, they have you in complete bondage. This is a book of freedom. This is not a book of bondage. This is a book of freedom. And when you know this book and the Catholic Church comes and tells you that you need to do this and that, you say, I don't. You are free from their lies. And that's the same with any other denomination that you're in or that you attend. They have no right to tell you that you can't read this book and you can't interpret it. Okay, That's the point that's being made there. Um, so where was I? Um, uh, yes, if it was received by the elders, it was still to be read to everyone in order to ensure that they were equipped with the same doctrine, filled with the same exhortations, and motivated by the same admonitions. As the main thought of the letter is that of the coming of the Lord for his people, those things which surround that notion were especially important to be absorbed into the minds of the people. Believers are to mind their own business and to work with their own hands. That's verse 411. And thus not to be a burden on anyone else. The timing of the Lord's coming is known only by the Lord. Only by the Lord. He has not revealed it to any person on this planet ever in the past because he's still not here. And he has not revealed it to any person alive today. Does everybody get that? Yep. The Lord has not revealed that. He is not going to reveal that. If anybody says that the rapture is going to happen on 25 September of this year, ignore him. Ignore that person. If anybody says that the rapture is going to happen on 12 December of this year, don't listen to that person. That person has made up something in his head and he is falsely telling you. Now, it is true that the rapture might happen on 12 December. Because eventually, if enough people say the rapture is going to happen on this day, every day of the calendar is going to be covered for the next 10,000 years. And somebody is going to be right, even if he was making it up. Do not believe people that say that they know when the rapture is, because they don't. All right? Uh, the time, read that again. The timing of the Lord's coming is known only by the Lord. He said this in Acts 1, 6 and 7. He's not going to lie to us about this. All right? So, and so we are to be about life's business. Paul's weighty word, which adjured that the letter be read to all, would hopefully motiv help motivate the people in the right direction. It is most probably for this reason that Paul says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Okay, he's charging them, he's adjuring them by an oath. They were all holy. They were all set apart to God. They were all brethren as well. And because of this, none were to be neglected in being given these words of knowledge, and all were to act in accord with the words as Paul has laid them out. All people in the congregation are to be given the word of God, and they are to be allowed to see it and to understand it and to have their life and doctrine set as well as the people in charge. Not just the, the people up at the top of the Catholic Church with their stupid little uh, robes and pointy hats. Those aren't the people that are entitled to the Word of God and nobody else. Everybody is entitled to it. Life application. Scripture is given to us for right conduct in this life and for the assurance of God's promises after this life. 
However, it is not given for us to know when we will transition between the two. If we did, we would not be paying attention to this life here and now as we should. And yet, countless people waste incredible amounts of time doing just this in direct disobedience to the words of scripture. Happens all the time. Okay, so uh, we are now in the final verse of 1 Thessalonians. Music, dun, dun, dun. Okay, go ahead. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then this one adds in the word, amen. So, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, amen. Okay, as with all of his epistles, Paul adds in his closing salutation, a blessing which is a petition for divine favor to be upon his audience. In the Greek, there is a definite article in front of the word grace. Not all definite articles need to be translated in the Greek, but there are times when it should be in there. In this, I would agree with Young's literal translation and others that put it in. It should be there. Quite often, English translations will insert the for clarity at certain points, but it may not be in the Greek. However, it is here. The grace is different than saying something like, may grace from the Lord Jesus be with you. Paul is asking for a divine impartation of this attribute of the Lord to rest upon those in Thessalonica and thus us, because we are included in this epistle, because it is in the word of God, and to sustain them in their walk. It must be then considered that those who are not obedient to the epistle are to be excluded from this petition. For example, in a similar petition for grace to be bestowed upon the congregation at Corinth, he wrote concerning a disobedient congregant, saying, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It should be obvious that until that person is willing to adhere to the sound instruction of the epistle, this petition for divine grace is not intended for him. If you're not living in accord with what Paul is writing, then he's not asking for that grace to be bestowed upon you. He wants you to first be in compliance with the word of God, and then may the grace of the Lord Jesus be on you. And yet, at the same time, we all fall short of one precept or another. Therefore, it must be considered that this is for those who earnestly strive for adherence to it, or even if they do fall short. Such is the nature of grace. It is undeserved merit. Paul, in one form or another, closes out every one of his epistle, epistles with such a note of request for this divine favor. Even the last words of the Bible very closely are aligned with his words. There John writes, let me read it to you right out of the Bible. He ends the Bible with this. What a wonderful thing. I mean, it's just so marvelous that God would allow a man to close out his word saying the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all amen okay there it is and so even the last words of the Bible are for a bestowal of grace and if you think about it you know I read this in a sermon a week or two ago or maybe it's coming up in a sermon I can't remember anyway the very first words ever given to man as recorded in scripture are law the very first words that was the first thing that was ever uttered to man law. And all the way through the Bible after that, law is the problem. All the way through until the coming of Jesus. And then grace is bestowed. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
grace is bestowed. And the very last words of the Bible end on grace. And yet people in the church, I'm not talking about Jewish people that are still trying to get you back under Moses, people in the church that say that they have received Jesus Christ as Lord still shove law back in our faces constantly. They cannot get the simple five-letter word grace. That is a real crime against the cross. That's a terrible crime against what Jesus has done. He did everything necessary for us to be saved and to live contently in his presence forever. And yet we reject it, we shun it, we mar it, we malign it in every possible way. That's what Peter did, and that's why it was so offensive what he did in Galatians chapter 2. He marred grace. Don't ever do that. And this is what the Bible wants us to know. It wants us to know that law cannot save anybody. All it did from the very beginning of human history was cause a separation between God and man. What we need is grace. Finally, Paul closes the letter with the word amen. In essence, so let it be. Paul has petitioned for grace upon his audience, and he then confirms that petition with the assured hopes that it will be so. Life application. The Bible time and again asks for an undeserved blessing to be bestowed upon those who pursue it. Even if they fall short of what it states, such is the nature of grace and such is the nature, nature of our gracious Lord. As you walk along life's highway, take time to contemplate the wondrous grace which has been lavished upon you and then thank the Lord and praise the Lord for that same grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that was given to us today by Phil, who paid for the pizza so that we can have a meal. And we thank you above all for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was willing to come from the heavenly realm, set aside his glory, and to live among us in a world filled with sinful people, dirty streets, hot days, and cold nights, thorns everywhere. He was willing to come down here and to spend his time with us walking around in desert areas and among people that did not care who he was just so that he could give us grace. Help us to learn this lesson and to never mar what he has done for us, what you have done through him for us, so that we will forever appreciate the goodness that stems from you. We thank you, we love you, we praise you, and we do so in the name of our wonderful Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, let's back this up and say goodbye to the folks. <laughs>